0: Our New Testament reading today is Revelation chapter 22, starting in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the streets of the city, also on either side of the river, and the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon, Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets. And with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I warn everyone who hears the word of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in this holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Our Old Testament reading is Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Pray with me. Lord, we pray that your word would go forth in strength, that it would be effective, that it would shape us and fashion us into the likeness of Christ that we would hear it and it would not just be words it would not just be knowledge but Lord that it would be powerful in our minds and our hearts that it would come to us day after day day and night that we would be reminded of you your wisdom your love your truth Lord shape and fashion us after the image of Christ in Him, his name we pray Amen. We're going to be going for the next, uh, including this week, six weeks through the Psalms. So we're not going to move so fast as to get through all 150 of them, but we'll look at six of them and we'll look at six different types of Psalms. So the book is split into five different books. You'll see that once you, if you're flipping through it, so every once in a while I'll say, oh, book two, book three, book four. There's separations. And within all of these books, you have all different types of psalms. You may think, when you hear the word psalm, you may think of praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And that is a very common theme. You have hymns of praise. You also have hymns of uh, uh, psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of psalms of lament. Why, my my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This comes from the Psalms. Psalms of confidence and confession. Psalms that call for judgment, which is kind of a hard topic to think about, but we'll eventually be looking at that as well. We also have Psalms that explicitly point forward to the Messiah. Psalms that are quoted all over the New Testament. In fact, Psalms with Isaiah are one of the most quoted Books in the New Testament, all pointing to Christ. You may think in when you hear the word Psalms, like what is the most common psalm? What do you really think of it? it Maybe praise, praise the Lord, but really the most common psalm and theme of the Psalms is Lament. Why are things like this? Why are things broken? Why are things so wrong? But the progression of the book, we'll see. Well, we won't actually see it (laughs) because we're not going to go through every single one. But laments are heavier in the front. There's more and more of them in the front. And as we get towards the end of the book of Psalms, there is more and more praise. So the entire shape of the book shows us that, yes, things are not how they should be right now. But we are looking forward to a time to the promises of God where in the future we will have all the reason to praise, praise, praise Calvin spoke of this book and he described it as an anatomy of of all the parts of the soul he said for there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror And in our first text, the way that the psalms open, the way that the whole thing is opened up is actually not a psalm of praise, not a psalm of lament, but a psalm of wisdom. It is a psalm that points us to the wisdom of God. Wisdom as in the wisdom literature like the Proverbs. This type of literature gives us a lived, life, practical application of God's law how we ought to live in light of what God has said. One thing to note about wisdom is that it will tell you this is how you should live and this will be the result. Somebody zooming in? or. <laughs> um, but we, we can see exceptions in our daily life. You can hear wisdom like, well, if you study hard and really do your best in school, you will excel. That's true. Except for the fact that some people may get in a car accident. They can't control that. They can't excel if, if, they, if, they, if something has intervened and given them brain damage, and they can't do it. They don't have control over that. So the, but that doesn't disprove the rule, Right? It doesn't disprove the rule that if you study hard and work hard, then you will excel, because it is something that is viewed broadly. It is broad, a broad view truth. This is generally true. But wisdom also tells us true things in the long view. So there's that broad view, like this is generally true, but there's also the long view. You hear things like, it is better to be honest than to lie. You'll get further being honest than you will lying. And that is, sometimes, that is often true. Because if you're caught in a lie, you're not going to be believed. You know, that's, that's often true. But you can see exceptions. Some people who lie their way to the top. And they lie, cheat, and steal. And they somehow don't get caught. And that infuriates us. But in the long view, they don't excel. Because God hates lies. And he is coming in the end to judge the righteous and the wicked. And so by wisdom, we see the broad view that these things are true in general, but also the long view that these things are true ultimately. And we'll we'll see how that plays out in in our text. Um, Our text, we see the call to delight in the word of God, and it says that you will prosper of the broad view. And then it says, it gives us the reasoning at the end, more reasoning, because the Lord will ultimately judge the wicked and save the righteous. Now you may think, wait, 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 wait. I've been in church long enough to know that that's not the gospel, right? It's not that God is going to come and take all of the bad people and punish them and then only the good people and save them because we've all sinned. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that doesn't sound like the gospel. But this is the base truth of things. That the wicked ought to be punished. And the righteous ought to be rewarded. That is the base truth. And by being reminded of this and God's law and the application of it, we see anew the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. Right? Because if we begin to think, well after a time of being a christian i'm i'm righteous right i'm the righteous one so i deserve this i deserve this place in god's family because i'm a righteous one that is not how scripture paints our position scripture says we are the wicked ones we don't have we don't have a way to god on our own but in seeing this in light of christ In light of our true estate, we are reminded of the goodness of what Christ has done for us, that the wicked ought to be judged, but only the the righteous rewarded. Let's look back at what this text is particularly calling us to. and This is found in verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law He meditates day and night. This is a picture of what the wise and blessed man does delight in the law of the Lord. The problem is that we sometimes do not see the scriptures as a delight. Rather, we think of them as an obligation or a chore or maybe a burden. I say scriptures instead of law here And I do want to explain that for a moment Because he says the law he meditates day and night When we hear law we think rules But when an Israelite says law When he says Torah He's talking about these books of the Bible These first five books They contain the law They contain lists of laws and rules and commands But if you're familiar with Genesis through Deuteronomy They are also full of rich accounts of God's love and faithfulness to an ultimately rebellious people. It is full of His promises for our good. And so for us to delight in the law is not simply to look at the rules, but to look at all of what this Scripture has to say. And for the writer of the Psalms, most of these Psalm writers lived in a time where the Torah, the law, was all of Scripture. This is the available Scripture that they had. And so for us to think about this in the New Testament it is right for us to look and say, well, the, the law, for me, really refers to this whole thing. It, re- it, it, it refers to all that God has said, all that God has given me to know, all of the of God's divinely inspired Scriptures. I... Ought to delight in that, but let's think back to our weakness and the difficulty of this. If we don't see the first part, don't walk in the counsel of the wicked, don't stand in the way of sinners. I can, I can not do the bad things. That's pretty easy that's pretty intuitive. I just need to follow my heart and, uh, you know, I can, I, can, I can figure that part out on my own. I don't really need to spend that much time looking at what God has to say. Or maybe we think in terms of, well, I'm just trying to get by. I'm not trying to be some super Christian who's in the Word all the time. You know, I don't. Uh, that's not me. Or maybe a little bit uh, differently, if you've been in the church a long time, you may be tempted—never in these terms—but you may be tempted to think, "I'm already pretty much that tree planted by the river." That kind of describes me. I know the scriptures pretty re- well already. I don't—I don't really need to consider them and meditate on them. I'm, I'm pretty much—I'm pretty much that tree with good fruit, and my leaves are always green. But a lot of times. It just comes out with words like, I don't have enough time. I'm too tired. It's so boring. Do you see yourself in any of these excuses? We are called to delight in the law of the Lord. Delight in it. To love it. To have joy in it. We may think, well, you know, yeah, it's hard, but you just got to do it. You just put your Nikes on and just do it. And I want to also caution in, in this because, yes, we, we do have to do it. There is some There's a level of wisdom in that, but also that's what the Pharisees did. They knew these, the Torah forward and backwards. They had it memorized. They could tell you anything contained in there. They knew the word But are they following this wisdom to delight in it? Did they delight in it? They did it out of compulsion. They did it because out of obligation. They did it because it was a great weapon to have for their enemies. Like, ah, this person's disobeying the rules. Let me memorize all these things so that I can show how bad you are and how good I am. That's not delight. That's using it as a weapon, as manipulation. We're not called to do that. We're called to delight. And in our delight, we'll run to it. In our delight, it will come to us. And this is a difficult thing to do because we can, we can say, well, I need to be orthodox, right? I need to believe the correct things. That's easy. Tell me the right things and I'll believe that. We think of orthopraxy, right? Right practice, doing the right things. Well, tell me the right thing to do. I can, I can do that. I can try my best. But we're talking about something a little bit different here called orthopathy, right feeling, feeling the right thing. Well, how am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to feel the right feelings? I can't control how I feel. How can I possibly follow this scripture? How can I possibly obey? How can I possibly delight in the words of the Lord? I don't feel like I can control that. We're going to walk through this passage going through verse by verse and I hope that it will show that the Scriptures are delightful and that you may delight in reading them and in meditating upon them. Not because you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps but because they're God's Word and they're beautiful. first part, we're going to see that in them we are shaped by them. In, the, in Christ's scriptures, by meditating on them and reading them, we are shaped by them. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So just a few words on this before we read verse 2. This is looking at basically the antithesis of Deuteronomy 6-7, where he says, Hero O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you're supposed to teach them to your children. You're supposed to talk about them when you're walking out on the road and when you're sitting down in your house. And that, that is this description of like, you're supposed to be able to talk about this stuff and, and rehearse this stuff. This is supposed to be on your lips constantly. You're supposed to teach your children this. And it's talking in, in these, these three different areas as a picture of the totality of life. In all of life, we're thinking about these things. In all of life, we're t- practicing and doing these things. And so here we see the opposite, right? The person who walks in the counsel of the wisdom, the person who stands in the way of sinners and sits in the seat of the, scholar, the pers- these are. this is a picture of the totality of life. There is a small degree to which... Um, we can look at this and say, well, of course, uh, you know, that doesn't really describe me. I wouldn't listen to wicked counsel. But how do you know what is wicked counsel and what is good counsel? How are you to judge that? How are you to know what is good and what is evil? Nor stands in the way of sinners. This has to do with. People going in different directions, being on a road. The way is a road. And so if you're on on the road that sinners walk on, you're going towards the thing that sinners do. You're doing things that are against the law. Well, who who among us can say that, well, I haven't done anything wrong or I haven't been on the way to do something wrong? No, that, that applies to all of us. Nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. That means that you are participating and living this way, that you are scoffing like the scoffers scoff. Blessed is the man who does not do these things. Verse 2, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now you cannot see this as two separate commands. Don't do the bad thing, but do the good thing. No, 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 no. This is one piece of wisdom. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on it he meditates day and night. And it is that which guides him to not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Because how are we to know what is wicked and what is good? The Word tells us what is wicked. And it tells us what is good. You can't just say, well, this is easy this is intuitive because there are so many things in here that that go against how we naturally feel because of our sin bent hearts we are to conform ourselves to the image that we see here or rather pray for God to conform us to his image that we see here that we see in Christ it is by delighting in the law of the Lord that we are able to to not stand in the way of sinners. And to not sit in the seat of scoffing. In that way. I do want to note on, have a note on how this looks in daily life. You know, part of that would be, you know, you like to, to read books about the Bible. And you like to listen to podcasts where people talk about, about the Bible. And, and you have all these different reasons. And those things are very helpful. And I do want to, but I do want to say that this is talking specifically about the word of the Lord that we find in Scripture. And so as far as those, how those, things, as far as those things point you to Scripture, yes, keep using them. Use them every day. But you can't use them to the exclusion of Scripture itself. This is the wisdom of God. This is where we see the truth of God. This is where we see Jesus Christ. And so, yes, use whatever good resources you can find, but not to the neglect of Scripture itself. Our delight is in the law of the Lord and His words here. And you may not see immediately in the text, well, why... How do, how do you come to that conclusion that delighting in the law leads to those other things? Well, it's in his illustration that he uses. Right? We are formed and shaped and fashioned by his word, and he shows us that by this picture in, verses, in verse 3. He, the blessed man, who is who delights in the law of the Lord, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit and fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers he the man is a tree and he is planted by streams of water what are the streams of water in this illustration it is the law of God that he is meditating on the man who meditates on the word is like a tree planted by streams of water these streams of water are God's word rushing over you god's word being sucked up through your roots and filling you up it is constantly available to you you're full of life because you have this given to you it is constantly available it is you're able to meditate on it like it's water being uh traveling up through the i don't remember the names of the veins of the trees xylem and phloem any elementary school students can help me um and it says its leaves how does it phrase it its leaf does not wither why does it not wither because it's full of that water that it has available it's full of this health and life that is a picture of us when we have const, when we have the ability when we when we have the delight in God's law, in his message and what he has given us to the totality of scripture, that delight. If we delight in it, it's in our heads and we want to think about it. We want to meditate on it. We want to see, well, how does this apply to, to me in this particular situation? Or how is it that Christ fulfilled this promise? Or how is it that Christ obeyed this law and fulfilled it on my behalf? To take delight and join that we are filled with it and it gives us life. And so that's how we see in the first part that the man who delights in the law won't do do those things because he delights in the law. The tree that bears fruits and has those healthy leaves is healthy because the stream is right there. It is the stream that brings life. And so it is with Scripture that brings life. That's sort of the second point that by Scripture... Through the power of the Holy Spirit we are given life. It is a means, a true means of grace that God has given to us. That we are to hear His gospel message and be shaped by it. And we can see that in the picture of that tree with its leaves that are not withering away but are green. And by its fruit that is readily available. So it in itself is full of life. It is has strength in itself, but not only in itself, because a tree that bears fruit is a blessing to everything around it. So it does not just have life in itself, but it gives life to everything around it. This is also true of that blessed man. The one who is filled with God's Word, who is shaped and fashioned by it. We're being shaped into the image of Christ We will be full of life, His life. But also, we'll be a blessing to those around us because we'll be shaped like Jesus. And Jesus was ever-giving, self-sacrificial, giving and serving and loving to those around Him. He was a life-giving person to be around. You want to be around Jesus. And you want to be around those sorts of people who are shaped like that, who give life. And by their presence you feel you see the joy you see that life it says in all that he does he prospers and I do want to put this into perspective because if you actually are filling yourself with the scripture and reading it you can see that God's servants suffer a lot Sometimes they get thrown into deep pits and sold into slavery. Sometimes they are falsely accused and fired from their jobs. Sometimes they are stoned to death. Sometimes they are crucified. So we can't look at this and say, well, if I just read my Bible enough, God's going to give me that car I want. If I just read my Bible enough, I'm going to start making tons of money. If I just read my Bible enough, I'm going to get everything that I, that I feel like I need. That's not the prospering that we see in Scripture. Rather, we see a more broad view prospering. We see a long view prospering. That what is important to God will be coming out of your life. Joseph was falsely accused and he lost his job. He was thrown into prison. But in the end, God used him to stop famine in the land. He used him to prosper, not only himself, but everybody around him. It wasn't easy. It wasn't pleasant. It didn't feel like prospering when he was in the, in the dungeon. But he truly was prosperous in the long view. He truly was prosperous in terms of God's intention. And his goals for his life, and so that th- that should put things into perspective. That we are we prosper, but maybe not in the exact way that we always feel like in that moment, or the ways that we want to in that moment. But there is true life to be had. There is true joy to be had. There is true strength to be had. In these words, we see that the Word word of God fills us with life. It shapes us. It fashions us. It teaches us the way to go and how we ought to live. But it's not just these in-life, broad-view promises that are true. There's also the long view. It says in verse 4 and following, The wicked are not so. But they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff, if you are dealing with grain, is the part that when you actually take the kernel of grain out, that's just the rest of it, just this flaky, nothing, useless, straw and paper-like stuff that, that, that you don't use. And so when, when they're separating the wheat from the grain, they throw it up in the air and you know, they go to a place with some wind up, up uh, on a mountain outside the city, and then the seed, all the grain falls straight down and they can catch it and they can gather the useful, purposeful, good grain. But the chaff, that useless papery stuff, gets blown away. It gets separated out, and that is the picture that we see of the wicked. It can be frustrating to be faced with this wisdom and say, well, I don't know. I see an awful lot of wicked people prospering. But in verse 5, we see the long view. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. To stand in the judgment is a picture of when, when God actually comes to judge when christ returns in power to judge if he judges worthy or unworthy coming with me or not coming with me if you're judging the wicked that person can't even stand up in the sight of what is going on he cannot stand he cannot withstand the judgment The wicked are not so. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Because when Christ comes back, there will be a congregation of the righteous. Those who are found in Him will be gathered together for life eternal. But the wicked will not be able to stand among them. Not having the Gospel in view This ought to be terrifying to hear. If you don't know the good news that Jesus gives you righteousness that He earned, then this ought to be scary. Because all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, know that we fall short. I don't even rise to my own standards, much less the standards that Scripture put forward. If we're honest with ourselves, we all come to the same conclusion. I have to count myself with the wicked. But Christ came and he obeyed the law perfectly. He fulfilled all righteousness, as he says, so that when he died, he he was in the place of this wicked man who would not stand in judgment. He was laid down in a tomb, dead, Even though he didn't deserve it. Even though he did nothing to deserve it, he was actually counted among the righteous. He should be standing in the congregation of the righteous. But he is laid down. And that righteousness that he earned is accounted to us. That death that he died is accounted to us. We are lifted out of this position his righteousness his goodness his obedience is applied to us and so that we may stand in the congregation of the righteous verse 6 says for the lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish when it says way it is kind of a metaphorical term it is ro- it's like talking about a road is something you travel on, the way of the righteous. And that's talking about the way that we live, the, how, we, how, we, how we walk about our, our life. And he says he knows the way of the righteous. And that's kind of hard to imagine. What does, that, what does that mean, he knows the way of the righteous? Does he not know the way of the wicked? Does he, is, it, is he ignorant of it? No, that's not what the text is saying. What does it mean he knows the way of the righteous? But in this poetic language, we can see in the couplet, we can kind of get an idea of what he's getting at. But the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked, this road that they travel up and down, is going to perish. It won't exist anymore. If you're traveling through a, a trail in the woods and you travel there all constantly, you and many others, and you wear out this path in the woods, you have this way. This road that is visible and present that you can travel and say, "Well, here's the way. Here's the way that we go to this place." But if the wicked are not there to walk upon the way of the wicked, what will happen? It will get overgrown. Bushes will rise up, trees will encroach. You'll have vines coming down and prairie grass coming up. And then a year later, you look and be like, "Wasn't there? Wasn't there a path here? Wasn't there a way here?" Well, it used to be, but now it's perished. It doesn't exist anymore because nobody walks on it. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That word knows can also mean to preserve. And so the way of the righteous, the life of the righteous, will go on. Even after the judgment, there will be life. And it will be the righteous who live in that life. There will be nobody who is doing the wrong thing. Only people doing the right thing. That is a great promise. A great looking forward. A great. This isn't just talking about, hey, you need to do this right now in this life and that's all you need to think about. No, we have a great promise. Look, in the future, we have a promise from God that all sin will be gone. That we won't be sinning anymore. That nobody else will be stealing and and plundering and murdering and lying. All of this stuff won't happen anymore because the way of the, the wicked will perish. It's It doesn't exist anymore after the judgment. It's a great promise. But it's also a sobering warning. When Christ came into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, after that account, we get this account in Matthew 21, verse, verses 18 and 19. In the morning, as he, Jesus, was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. We see Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem to purchase and provide salvation, but it's also an image of His coming again. When Christ comes again, when He has His triumphal entry from the sky riding on a cloud, this glorious return, the tree that has no fruit will once again wither and die. There's a sobering thought. Brings to mind all the New Testament passages. Make your calling and election sure. All of these things that we're called to do. Be people of the gospel. This is not a just do it commandment, remember. Not, you've got to really study this or else, you know, judgment might come and that might be you. But remember, it's an exhortation to delight to take joy, to love the Word of the Lord. In thinking about this, we need to reflect who has never taken wicked counsel? Who has never sinned? Who has never scoffed or mocked? Who is it, who is this man, this blessed man who has always delighted in the word? Even the laws contained in the word. Who is this man that is full of life? Who is a life-giving man? It's true that this is wisdom for you and me. But the only one that it truly and fully fully, accurately describes is Christ. He is that good tree. He is the true blessed man. He brings forth fruit in His season and by it we are blessed. We have life. His leaves will never wither. We read in Revelation This is the blessing for us purchased by Christ. This is an image of what he gives to us. In his perfect obedience, in his word-filledness, spirit-filled perfection, he is the true tree by streams of living water by which we will have eternal So yes, this wisdom is true for me and for you for our daily life, but it is ultimately true in Christ and what He has done. He is the life-giving man. Christ also spoke of the law in the Sermon of the Mount. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. Not a single letter in there, right? Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He's saying all of this is still in effect. It is still useful. It is still good. Still be filled with this. But he says it will all be accomplished and it is all accomplished through Christ. Every law that you read, Christ has obeyed it. Every promise that you read, that there will be a, a son come through the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, is fulfilled in Christ. And in, in your offspring, Abraham, all the nations, will be ble- all the families of, of, of the world will be, left, will be blessed, fulfilled in Christ. All of the promises and all of the prophecies, fulfilled in Christ. Is that not delightful? Is that not beautiful? David and the other writers of the Psalms couldn't have known the glory that was to come. And so for us to look and see these promises and these laws, to see all of these things fulfilled in the beauty and perfection of Christ, shouldn't we delight in this all the more? If they can read this in delight, how how much more can we? Christ has paid the price for our sin and he has fulfilled everything. And so should we now say, well, I guess I don't really need to read this because Christ fulfills everything, right? So he'll take care of that for me. I don't really need to, to read that. He's the tree, so I don't really need to be a good tree. No. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christ doesn't call you to earn your place out of obedience. You have been freely cleansed of sin and welcomed in. And having been given that freely, we should all the more strive to be shaped into His image by the power of His Word. Not merely going over the words out of compulsion, just reading because, well, this is what you got to do to be a good Christian, but chewing on them, meditating on them, seeing the beauty in what Christ has done to truly fulfill these things. We can delight in that because these words will change you and shape you to be more like Him. This should not be done in a spirit of drudgery because the words we see here, they are life-giving. The promises of God are invigorating all the more as we see how Christ fulfills them. We don't do this to earn love, but to give love. You are more loved than you can fathom or imagine. Because of the beauty that Christ has placed upon you, God loves you so immensely. You can't even even conceive of the love that He has for you. You don't need to work to earn that love. You have no need to seek it. Let your anxiety over that fade. Do not worry about being good enough, loved enough, because in Christ you are. And having received so great a love, let us freely give it to those around us, being filled with his word, that we may bear fruit of love to those around us. And we don't read this to avoid punishment. Christ has taken the punishment if you trust in him. Our goal is to join him and giving that kind of life. We can't die for sins like He did, but we can point others to the One who has. He is their only hope. As As we have read, no sinner will stand in the time of judgment. Not one. Only those who are counted righteous will be known by God. The rest will perish. Let us go to Him and pray Lord we thank you for your word we thank you that it is life giving we thank you that you have fulfilled your promises to us that you have been steadfast you have been faithful you have loved us deeply and we pray Lord for your spirit upon us that we would be people who delight in your word who do not read out of guilt and compulsion, but who have your words in our minds and our heart because it is beautiful. You are beautiful. It contains your truth. It contains your promises. It contains all of the things, the mighty works that you have done through history. Lord, give us the delight of your word that we may be trees planted by streams of water bearing fruit in its season with leaves that are always green and never wither. Lord, implant this in us by the power of your Spirit through the work of your Son, Lord, as you have ordained for us in your divine will. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.